In the Old Testament, God gave certain redemption laws that governed the lives of Israelites in their relationship with him. However, those same laws move up to a much higher supernatural level of revelation concerning the inheritance of sons and daughters of God in this new covenant. When you see the correlation between the two, it is absolutely an empowering thing that will make you be even more bold in claiming, I am one of God's redeemed. It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. Welcome to part two of The Redeemed of the Lord. Wasn't it a powerful revelation that we got into last week? where we laid the foundation of this tremendous insight into who we are in Christ. We started with Psalm 107, verses 1 and 2. This says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. So much was covered about the redemption that took place of the children of Israel out of Egypt's bondage into the land of promise, and our redemption out of the bondage of sin and enslavement to the dictatorial rule of Satan and how God has brought us into a spiritual land of promise. Well, let's start in this second session on redemption at Exodus chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. And the reason I want to start there is because it's the third time that redemption is mentioned in the Bible. However, it's hidden. You won't see it in the English translation, and that makes it all the more intriguing to me. But first, let me remind you of the meaning of the word redeem. To redeem means to buy back that which has been lost, stolen, sold, or forfeited. And to be redeemed means to be loosed away from bondage, to be set free from captivity. Now, during the time that judgments were falling on Egypt, and God's ultimate goal was to set his people free, to redeem them from Egyptian bondage, a certain plague came where God said in Exodus 8, verses 22 and 23, I will in that day set apart the land of Goshen in which my People dwell that no swarms of flies shall be there. I'd like this literally fulfilled during the summer on my back porch, wouldn't you? That no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am Yahweh. In the original Hebrew, it's the tetragrammaton, the four-letter Hebrew word for God, yad heh vav heh which is translated Yahweh, uh, literally. But in most of our Bibles, it's rendered Lord. He said that you may know that I am the Lord. I will put a division between my people and your people. And this prophecy was actually given to Pharaoh, where Moses told Pharaoh that a swarm of flies would cover the land of Egypt, but 
that God would put a division between the Israelites and the Egyptians and that no flies would be in the land of Goshen. So where does redemption fit into that picture? The word that is translated division is peduth, P-E-D-U-T-H, which is also translated redemption. So in other words, God was saying, I am going to draw a line of redemption around the area where my people live and dwell, and the curse of flies will not be able to get in there. It's like the iron dome over that region where curses couldn't get to them because they were protected. They were preserved by God. Well, I like to personalize that. And sometimes I'll, in a spiritual sense, draw a line around my home and say, this is a line of division, a line of redemption. No curse belongs here. This is a place of blessing. This is a place of healing, health, peace, joy, redemption. No demon power has authority in this home because there's a line of redemption around this home. And you could do it around your own personal life. You could point down to the ground and in a figurative sense, draw a line around yourself and say, within this circle is protection and provision and preservation because my Redeemer is watching over my life. Isn't that interesting? And you can do it around your children, your possessions, your career. In a symbolic sense, make that a prayerful utterance. Now, I want to get into the meat of what the word redeemer means in an old covenant setting. See, there's so many truths that were revealed in a certain sense in the Old Testament that are bumped up to a much higher place of meaning in the New Testament. And I'm going to cover what has been called the redemption laws of the Old Testament to show you what God has done for us on a much higher level. See, in that era, if a Jewish person, if an Israelite became very challenged financially and couldn't pay his bills and could not pay his debt, then he would have to sell his property, sell his home, sell his land, which was never really supposed to happen in Israel. That's why there could not be great real estate landowners because the land was supposed to be passed down from generation to generation after it was allotted when they first came into the land of promise. <clears throat> but if an Israelite had to sell his land, if an Israelite had to give up ownership of his home, it became the responsibility of his nearest kinsman to come and redeem that property, to buy back that home, to buy back that property, and restore that possession to his relative. No debt incurred. The nearest kinsman did not have to uh, put in writing, you owe me such and such, uh, and you've got to pay off that bill. It was a free gift, and it was commanded by God. Now, interestingly, the same word that is translated redeemer in the Old Testament is translated kinsman, and in some cases, nearest kinsman. It's translated 18 times as redeemer, in the King James Version, and 14 times as kinsman or nearest kinsman. 
because those two roles were fulfilled by the same person. A redeemer was the closest relative or the nearest kinsman that you had. What do I see in that on a much higher level? He's my redeemer. The Lord Jesus Christ is also, though, my nearest kinsman. He's closer than a mother could ever be, closer than a father could ever be, closer than a husband or wife could ever be, closer than a son or daughter, brother or sister could ever be. He's a friend that sticks closer than all of those relationships I've mentioned. He's my nearest kinsman. And see, on a spiritual level, there's times that you get indebted. In fact, prior to salvation, you owed a debt that you could not pay. You were so indebted to God and indebted to others because of your sinful choices, you never could have paid off the debt. But then your Redeemer came, your nearest kinsman came, he paid off the debt when he went to the cross and handed back to you a worthwhile life, a life that was not challenged because of sin's effects, but a life that has goodness and purpose attached to it. Praise God, your Redeemer came and he rescued you and he purchased back for you a dwelling place in a spiritual sense, a place, a position to dwell in that has purpose, has meaning, has value. Praise God. But it goes deeper than that because if that impoverished state was so severe that an Israelite had to sell himself as a slave and or sell his wife and children as slaves. Can you imagine that? There was no way to file for bankruptcy where the courts would protect you until you could pay back your bills. Sometimes there were serious consequences, and you might have to sell yourself into slavery. But once again, the the goel, that's how it's spelled in Hebrew, G-O-E-L, or how it's pronounced rather in Hebrew. The goel, the redeemer, Fill the role of the nearest kinsman again who would come and buy you back out of slavery and buy your family out of slavery and set you free. And within the confines of Israel, of course, if people were being sold as slaves, then the nearest kinsman could walk into those proceedings and say, I claim redemption rights and have the first opportunity to purchase you before others could even get involved. (laughs) How does that relate to you? Well, you were a slave. I was a slave. I was a slave to sin. I was a slave to negative emotions, to depression, to guilt, to anger. I was a slave to the fallen state that was passed on to me from Adam, my forefather. And you were too. We were all enslaved by satanic powers that wanted control of our lives. And, And so we were not our own. We were under the dominion, under the power of the spirits we had yielded to. But then our Redeemer came and loosed us away from that bondage. He bought us back. And now whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And once again, when the Redeemer did that in the Old Testament, no debt was incurred. There was no payment plan in place. It was all a free act of love orchestrated by God. Thank God the death of Jesus on the cross was an act of love on the Father's part. For God so loved the world that he sent his Redeemer Son to rescue us from the earth's enslavement. Praise God for that. But it goes even deeper in the redemption laws of the Old Testament. If an Israelite was murdered 
it became the responsibility of his nearest kinsman to drop every earthly endeavor, no matter what he was doing, what he was involved in, in his business, in his farm, or his personal life. He had to drop it and pursue the killer because there was no police force in Israel. And the way God took care of justice being served was the nearest kinsman would kill the killer. And thus, the payment for that ill deed was made. Well, many times the Redeemer, the nearest kinsman, would fail in that endeavor because he would not find the killer or end up being killed himself. But in that role, he was called the avenger or the revenger of blood. And the word that is translated Redeemer, Goel, that is also translated kinsman, Goel, is translated avenger and revenger. 18 times it's translated Redeemer, 14 times kinsman, six times as avenger, and six times as revenger, because the same person filled all those roles. Can you see the power of this? That Jesus, when he came from heaven to fill the role of a redeemer, was our nearest kinsman, but he was also the avenger of blood. Now, that may sound dark and ominous, but it's not because the whole human race was murdered. Genocide took place in the Garden of Eden. When Adam died, we all died. Paul talked about that in his epistle to the Romans. He said, in Adam, all died. Think of that, that when he died spiritually, when he was cut off from God, when sin contaminated his soul, that's the state that he passed on to all of his offspring from that point forward. They were born, conceived in iniquity, born in sin, and born separated from God. We didn't become sinners because we sinned. We sinned because we were born sinners. That's the actual order, because we were born into a death state spiritually. Well, when Jesus came, thank God, thank God, thank God, he came to pursue the murderer. And he did say that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. A murderer from the beginning? Yes, he killed Adam. He killed Eve with his deceptions. He killed them spiritually. He killed them soulishly. And ultimately, he killed them physically because the death that gripped them eventually worked its way into their physical being and brought them to the grave. So in every area of their being, they were impacted by death. But Jesus came to avenge us of that death blow. And everywhere he went, he was avenging the slain of the human race. He found a woman that was possessed with seven devils that probably had lived a very sensual life and opened the door through her immorality to demon possession. And he redeemed her or avenged her of what the enemy had done to enslave her, and he cast those demons out. Then he found a man in the tombs that was called Legion, who was possessed with a legion of demons. He, he avenged him mentally of the invasion that had taken place in his life. Everywhere he went, he was avenging those who had been stricken physically with diseases like the 10 lepers, or those who had been oppressed mentally and spiritually, and avenge them 
by setting them free and by ridding them of the influence of the one who comes to kill. Not only Satan, but all the demonic powers that serve under him have caught his same purpose or motive in intruding into our lives. But then he went to the hill called Golgotha, where he faced off with the killer. And he did something that no redeemer had ever done before. He allowed himself to be killed by the killer. It wasn't really the Roman soldiers. He said, you're not taking my life from me. Uh, he, He told Pilate the decision wasn't really in his hands. It was the will of God, the purpose of God, that Jesus die on the cross. But when he died, the scripture says he tasted death for every man. In other words, the death and the judgment that caused death soaked into his body like a sponge. He drew in all of the curse, all of the judgment that should have fallen on all of those in the past, in the present, in the future. And of course, three days later, he came out of the grave and shook off the shackles of death and that judgment. But in doing so, he avenged us all. No wonder he said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. One day, the devil will be cast into a bottomless pit forever and forever into the lake of fire. So vengeance will finally be wrought. And the avenger of blood, the redeemer kinsman, has come into our lives. You can trust in him. The enemy may fight against you, but God will intervene for you. Now in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born unto the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So another thing he redeemed us of was our lost status as sons of God. See, the first one to be called a son of God was Adam. Way back in Genesis, after God created him and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, he became a son of God. One of the gospel writers declared that. And he lost that spiritual sonship when he was separated from God. And consequently, we all lost it too. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive something better than just being under the law, under the commandments of the Old Testament, but that we might be regenerated and born again, that we might receive the adoption as sons, that God might bring us into a relationship with himself where we could have a father-son relationship with him. In the Old Testament, they were more like servants serving God as their master. But now we are sons in a relationship with God as our father. It's a much better way of redeeming the human race. And thank God, God has done that. Now, in the next episode of Discover Your Spiritual Identity, we're going to move over into the New Covenant and the New Testament and some of the powerful promises that you find in the New Testament. But I want to cover first the launch that took place that took us from the old into the new. And that's when Jesus announced his ministry. Let me take you there. He announced his ministry in the synagogue at Nazareth. And he quoted from 
Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Remember when he opened the book to read as his pattern was? So he often read scriptures like the different men in the synagogue would do on the Sabbath day, the Shabbat. But it just happened to be the day he was going to launch his ministry, and it just happened to be a prophecy concerning him that he just happened to have the responsibility of reading that day. All those coincidences were really God incidences. And this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord, Yahweh, has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, why is that important in this teaching on redemption? Because the term, the acceptable year of the Lord, is also called the year of God's redeemed. And it's also called the year of Jubilee. It was a year that happened every 50 years in Israel, where all redeemable things that had not yet been redeemed by the nearest kinsman in every family would then be redeemed by the proclamation of God. In other words, those who had lost their property, lost their land, lost their homes, those who were enslaved and no one had come to their rescue would be redeemed in the year of Jubilee. It was called the year of God's redeemed. And Jesus launched his ministry saying that he came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which was another way of referring to the year of God's redeemed, the Jubilee year. And it was also called the year of the Lord's favor. Praise God, it was brought in with the sounding of trumpets all over the land of Israel. In fact, there is a scripture verse on the Liberty Bell, an icon of the United States of America, that uh, has a scripture on it from Leviticus 25 that says, proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. That was really a reference to the proclamation of Jubilee year whenever it happened, every 50 years. But when Jesus announced that he had come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, he wasn't talking about a specific year every 50 years when this kind of freedom would be available, but he was talking about an era that he had come to launch us into an era of redemption, a jubilee era, where he would open the prison doors. We would no longer be imprisoned by our past, where he would proclaim liberty to the captives, those who were captivated by repetitious, addictive sins in their life, or satanic control in their life, or the lower nature dominating them in their lives, that he would bring liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison door and restore us. It's the year in which restoration takes place. And this is the era of redemption. This is the era of restoration. I really look forward to sharing with you the rest of these transition proclamations and scriptures that show the power of what redemption is in the new covenant. You're going to be thrilled. You're going to be amazed at what I share on the next episode. Thank you for joining me this time around, and I look forward to our next time together.
Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shreve, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given His people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.